There is a God. He is alive. In Him we live and we survive. We're looking at Luke chapter 16. We are covering material from this book, Faith Principles. Uh, hopefully everyone has one. If you don't have a Faith Principles book and you want one, we are, um, we are doing, no, we're not selling them. We will give them out in two weeks. We're going to have a reprinting. You know I can hear you guys. Oh, no, if you miss, we... There's grace right now. This is a grace, gracious time in the church. If you lost yours, you'll get another one, all right? But um, yes, I can hear you. And if I can't hear you, I can see you whispering to each other and then laughing at me. Um, I prefer you laugh with me, but I'm sure I give you plenty to laugh at as well. But we are covering what page in this book? We are covering pages 6 through 10. No, yes, 6 through 10, okay, today. Does that sound good? Pages 6 through 10, faith of the few is what we're going to start with. Now, the other thing I need to tell you, I have to be honest, socioeconomic background. It's not our political views. It's none of those things. What makes our, us a church is our common understanding and conviction and love for following the Bible. Okay, and so we want to make sure our understanding of the Bible is clear, solid, and, and unified. And so in Luke chapter 16, we need to understand a, a, a concept here that's very, very important. In Luke chapter 16 and verse 10, Jesus says this thing, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly riches, worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? It says, and if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? You know, we look at this word trusted and trustworthy, and when you think of it, you think of a person of character, a person you could rely on. Is that, when you think of trustworthy, doesn't that picture come into your mind? You don't think someone is trustworthy that you just meet off the street, do you? No. Being trustworthy is what? Proven. Amen. But guess what? That word trustworthy really means faithful. In the Greek, it's literally the word faithful. Amen. In most translations, New King James Version, New American Standard Version, uh, the New Revised Standard Version, the King James Version, the word is faithful. Trusted, trustworthy, comes from the Greek word pistis. And remember, the Greek word for faith or faithfulness is pistis. It's the same root word. And so in line one... The notion is, we must be completely faithful, even in the small things. Amen. Does that make sense? Jesus said, hey, if you are not faithful with little things, how can you handle true riches? If you're not faithful with just the everyday things of life, how will salvation stay in your hands? It's an important question for, to ask ourselves. Let's go to verse 13. Because Jesus makes it clear, no one can serve two masters. Either you will ha hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. 
God looks for us to be completely faithful, even in the small things, especially with how we use our resources, and that's something important to discuss in the church. But, you see, God is looking at a faith that's very different from popular Christianity. He's saying there's got to be a faithfulness even in the small things. There's got to be a complete sense of faith in our lives. But he also says there needs to be this thing called unrivaled love. In line two, it says a saving faith requires having an unrivaled love for God. Unrivaled. It says you can't love two things at once. This makes common sense, right? Think about the love you want to have in your life. When you are thinking about the love of marriage, some of you are married, some of you aren't, but just that kind of love. You don't want it to have competition. Husbands, would you want your bride to say, can I have my ex-boyfriends be my bridesmaids? I mean, I love you. I just want to have, I have some good memories with these other guys. You're like, pass. Right? And so God just says, you got to have an unrivaled love for him. That's the kind of love that God looks for. That's the kind of love we would want in our lives. See, this kind of faith, this kind of saving faith, is not the faith that has been taught to the masses. It's just not. Let's go to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. In verse 22. Luke chapter 13, verse 22 then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he, as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Isn't this a question that comes up a lot when you're working with people spiritually? Hey, only a few people being saved? Look at America. You know, surveys show that most Americans think they're being saved. Most people think, oh yeah, I'm going to heaven. But you see... The question here to Jesus was, is, is it going to be a lot of people or is it going to be a few? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because I tell you, many will try to enter and will not be able to. That's a bone-chilling passage right there. Line 3 says, contrary to what mass Christianity teaches, it takes every effort to be saved. It takes every effort to be saved. You know, does that mean we're earning our salvation? Let me be honest with you. Let's use common sense. I say just use common sense. How many parents here find parent easy? Be, being a parent easy? How many feel like being a parent takes all of your effort? How many of you do it because you love your kids? There you go. Are you earning something from your child? No. How many of you think taking, making your marriage work has involved a lot of effort? Raise your hand. Does that make sense? It takes a lot. Marriage oftentimes is more heartbreaking than parenting. 
You know why is that? Because your kid didn't have any uh, choice in being born, okay? Just so you know, you chose. So you kind of feel obligated, right? You know, I brought this kid in the world. You got to do something with it. There it is, crying. Got to feed it, right? But your spouse, you choose each other. When you choose each other, it puts you in this vulnerable position. It's that feeling when you're mad at someone or you hurt someone and you want to apologize, but what if they don't respond well? Doesn't that make you even matter? Right? You know, uh, right? So when we have marriage, it's harder sometimes. Because that's what, you know, and, and so we've got to understand love takes every effort. It just does. Not like I'm on this treadmill trying to earn my salvation. Not that there's all this checklist. It just keep your mind around this notion of just love. You have to work things out if it's a relationship of love. Is that clear? And so in, in line four, we call making every effort devotion. I just want us to kind of, you go, well, is that in the Bible? Yes, devotion is often mentioned in the Bible. But sometimes when we're doing faith principles, when we're studying the Bible with people and we're talking with each other, what bonds us is kind of having similar language. And so we really want to call each other to be devoted. That word devoted, isn't that cool? You could say committed. But I'll tell you, when you, you could be committed to something, but your heart's not there. But when you're devoted, doesn't mean your heart's there too. So that's why we say devoted, because we kind of want our hearts to be there too, not just our bodies. And you know, just so you want to understand, what is devotion? How does that work? Devotion means you care. Sometimes, I'll be honest with you, your body can't be here, but your heart can be. Amen. Your body's not here, but your heart can be. You can say, hey, how was the service? Hey, how was everyone? How was everyone in our small group? You know what I'm saying? You can show you care, even if you're not there. Is that clear? Sometimes you could be here and not care. That's not devotion either. So let's just make sure we understand that. But that's what we call. Let's go to Matthew chapter 7. And so I record these because these lessons are actually passed on to some of the other churches that I work with, just so you know, okay? But here's the funny part. So I'll, I'll make these like personal comments during the thing so many people hear it. What I decided to try to do is while I'm doing this lesson, I'm filling in the blanks too. That way we can all stay together. Sometimes I'm cranking through and I don't even give you time to write. So just so you know, if you watch me and I all of a sudden look down and you start scribbling, it's because I'm trying to connect here, you know, make sure we're doing the same things. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. See, Jesus repeats this notion. In Matthew 7, verse 13, he says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And who? Many enter through it. It says, But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. And so one of the things we need to understand, these are Jesus' words. We're not making them up. He's saying many do not make it. And that's something for us to kind of understand because in line five, mass, okay, mass popular Christianity is not saved Christianity. Mass popular Christianity is not saved Christianity. 
These scriptures are very bone chilling. They're just right from Jesus' mouth. And you see, sometimes we can get totally distracted and led astray just because it's popular. Just because everyone likes it. Just because everyone's happy with it. We go, oh, it must be it. It must be great. They might have all the right programs, all the right marketing, all the right branding. You know, everything is awesome. But you know, mass popular Christianity is by its nature not saved Christianity. That's something to kind of, woo, stop, hold your horses and look at. Now, just because a few people believe it doesn't mean it's true either. That's why we got to be rooted in the scriptures. But Jesus says, hey, where all the lemmings are going is leading down a cliff. So a saving faith is the faith of the few. He says, only a few find it. And so if you're a guy who's really looking for everyone to like you or to be part of the crowd or whatnot, you're not going to find a saving faith. And to, to be honest with you, if everyone likes you and everyone's following you and all that kind of stuff, you know, it could really mislead you. So it's not something to look, look for or crave. Let's go to verse 15. Well, what are some characteristics of the faith of the few? In verse 15, Jesus says, okay, let me help you understand who the faith of the few is. It says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Line six, fruitfulness. Fruitfulness shows the faith of the few. You know, fruitfulness does. What does that mean? Let me educate you. Let me make our lesson a little bit longer. Our church has swung in different pendulums. If you've been here longer than whatever, 10 years, one, on one side of the fence, the extreme is, hey, you know what? If you bear fruit, that means you make a disciple, baptize them, and you keep them faithful. And if they leave, guess what? You're a bad tree because only a good tree produces good fruit. And so to be fruitful is you've got to make a Christian. And keep them faithful. Now here's the question. How many of you can control another person's behaviors? It's not possible. You know who tries to control other people's behaviors? Supervillains. That's always the plot of a supervillain, right? You know? Yeah, Lex Luthor, the, you know, doofenshmirtz, you know? The controller people's brainator, Right? You know, no one can do that. And God doesn't want to turn us into supervillains. You can't make a disciple and keep them faithful. And if you, you know, that's not in your power. Okay, plus they'll say, well, but look, let's use logic. What does an apple tree make? So what should disciples make? They say disciples. That, but that's not logic either because apple trees, I mean, apple trees don't make apple trees. Apple trees make apples. They don't produce trees. Ah. So then we go from one end of the spectrum to the other. And they go, oh, it's fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Fruits of the Spirit. One, that's not the language of the Bible. The Bible says fruit 
singular of the Spirit is singular, love. And you're going to understand, if you, and we'll do another study another time. I've tried it once here with the ministry, but you've got to look at the whole Scripture. Love binds all the qualities of peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control together. If you think fruits of the Spirit are any one of those qualities, the church becomes very unloving. Because you could say, well, my strength is self-control. And I'm being very fruitful in my self-control. And I have good fruit of self-control. For example, I come to church and dislike almost everyone in the fellowship. But I don't act on it. Because I'm very self-controlled. See, the fruit of the Spirit is love. By people's love, you can recognize a Christian. John 13, 34 through 35. We'll look at all these scriptures later. But how can you tell a true Christian if they love like Jesus? So, line seven, bearing fruit means loving like Jesus. Now, if you're studying the Bible with a person, do you go through that long monologue that I just did? Not really, but it'll be covered in the scriptures later on. But for our fellowship, we've kind of gone one extreme to another. And some of us, have, we've just not felt the obligation to love like Jesus. Do it in everything. At work, love like Jesus. At home, love like Jesus. In church, love like Jesus. That's it. You'll see, wow, that's an answer. That's like an answer for everything. And so sometimes we just got to ask people, does your faith require you to love like Jesus? Most people's faith just requires them to accept Jesus and to be grateful. But our faith requires us to love like Jesus. Let's go to verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. These are scary passages because, remember, the title of this lesson is The Faith of the What? Few. These people called Jesus Lord. These people were surprised. These people cast out demons in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, perform many miracles. If I walked into this room and did that, if I made the blind see, if I made the deaf hear, if I made the bald hairy, <laughs> In Jesus' name, not in mine, in Jesus' name. You'd be like, oh my goodness, this guy is from God. But he says, that's not what makes people from God. You see, in order to be saved and enter the kingdom, we must obey him. We must do the will of the Father. Jesus must actually be Lord of our lives. And that's what the scriptures say. There's no other way to look at it. 
Jesus must actually be Lord of our lives. In uh, verse 24, it says, In order to be saved, we must hear the word and obey it. Let's take a look. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. You know, it's interesting, but you know what? We just got to really, it just says, the difference between the two builders is simply obeying the word. Both heard the word. The difference between success and failure, spiritually, is obeying. This is the faith of the few. We believe we must obey the scriptures. We believe we must love like Jesus. We believe it takes every effort. And we'll close out this portion of the study in Matthew chapter 6. Let's take a look at that. In verse 33. It says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And the simple question that we need to ask ourselves is, are we willing to make every effort to learn God's word and obey it? Are we willing to make every effort to seek out his kingdom? Seeking the kingdom should be the top priority in our lives. In everything that we do. You go, is the kingdom, oh, just church? I got to really focus on church? No, I mean, church is part of the kingdom of heaven. But really, it says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Amen. And it's very important, just man, is it, is it that important to me to be godly? How willing are you to have the faith of the few? Change your mentality. When I say godly, I'm telling you, a lot of us, if, if you're like me, and you grew up in some sort of American culture, when you think of godly, I don't know, I think of all of a sudden change. <laughs> Like, you know, my lips, my muzzled, you know, my ears get plugged up, my eyes get, you know, they're like, you know, I have to walk like in a straitjacket like this. Oh, you got to be godly. Godly means like God. God is what? Love. So the faith of the few are people who are passionate about being loving like Jesus. Is that clear? But still, that is a minority view of what faith is. Let's go on to the second lesson. Let's go to Revelation chapter 3. Because I really want us to get our minds to cross over from a checklist point of view of Christianity to a love-centered one. You know, a lot of people, uh, there were some people even who started participating in our faith principles. They're from different religious backgrounds. They got very, very angry and saying, hey, you know what? Uh, you're telling me it's work salvation. I don't believe in work salvation. We, are, we don't think in terms of transaction. In America, we live in what's called a capitalist economy. And so everything is about transactions, contracts, what you do to earn something. And we've reduced Christianity into that. But Christianity is all about relationships. It's all about love. And so even the false doctrine that people teach, it's just based on a materialistic view of Jesus. And so really just start channeling everything. When everyone's saying godly or righteous, think of one word, love. Is that clear? 
That's still hard work. I'm not, you know, love ain't easy. Okay. But it's the spirit and heart of the scriptures. Revelation chapter 3, verse 15. Revelation 3, verse 15. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You go, oh my goodness, once again, God just wants to kick me out. But you see, the love and faithfulness God wants is the same as the love and faithfulness we want. Okay, is that clear? Does that make sense? You know, just try not to get all weird about it, right? What, would, what kind of love would you want? What, how do you want your kids to react when it's, their, when it's your birthday? Eh, hey, Mom. Get me some cereal. No, you want them to go, Happy birthday, Mom! Happy birthday, Dad! What do you want your spouse to do on Valentine's Day? Eh, What's up? <laughs> What's up? Right? You don't want that. So our faithfulness, like our love, must be hot. Our faith is either hot or not. Either you have a, a living faith or a dead one. Period. See, and, and, and we got to take a look at what is love. Remember, we don't love God all... I mean, God is so much love. He's given us family to, to be an uh, um, illustration of His love. That's why marriage is an illustration of God's love, husband to the bride. The church is the bride of Christ. God says, I'm your father and you are my, what? Children. So He literally describes some of the most loving relationships that we're supposed to have in our life. And he says, that's how I'm supposed to be with you. Okay, so today, right now in this study, you're really looking at the parental model of love that God has for us. Because if you have loving parents, loving them is more than just being grateful for them. Deep love involves respecting them and wanting to be like them. Parents, that's how you... Raise your kids. You want them to go, wow, mom, dad, I see how you've lived. I see how you've loved. I'm grateful to you. I'd really like to be more like you. I want to have a family just like our family. Have you, you know, you dream of those little statements being said. Does that make sense? And so just as with real love, real faith not only appreciates God, Real faith admires God and aspires to be like Him. Sound good? Amen. And there are definitions here on the handout. We'll just kind of go over them, right? Appreciating Jesus is being grateful for what He has done. Simply it. Most denominations stop at that. That says you're, you're a Christian, you've appreciated, you've accepted Jesus, you've thanked Him. But always remember this. When Jesus died on the cross for our sins, no one followed Him. They didn't. You know, and, and we're going to take a look at more. So appreciating is good, but it's not enough. Appreciating Jesus is not enough. What else? 
A saving faith does not stop at appreciation. Admiring Jesus is understanding and praising him for who he is, his amazing qualities. He's heroic. He's sacrificial. He's gracious. He's wise. We've got to learn how to admire Jesus. In our relationships, I'm telling you, we're having a marriage retreat. But you know what? You want to start getting ready for that retreat right now? Admire your spouse. Amen. Don't say thank you for dinner. Say you are an amazing, beautiful, awesome servant of Jesus. <laughs> Remember, I can hear you. And it helps me. Trust me. Don't worry. It helps me. Well, aspiring to be like Jesus is appreciating and admiring him so much that you have the goal to be like him. A saving faith requires appreciating and admiring Jesus so much that we aspire to be like him by following him as, as Lord. So remember, faith is not just believing what Jesus has done for us, but we have to believe that he earned our respect and deserves to be wholeheartedly followed. Can you get that? Amen. In line 9, we need to have a faith that follows Jesus. A faith that follows Jesus. Complete saving faith. In contrast, mass Christianity, I've already told you, teaches that saving faith only involves appreciating and accepting Jesus, and that's not enough. You go, oh, well, Jesus just died for our sins. Jesus died for our sins, no one followed him. Does your faith see obedience as a required opportunity to be like Jesus? Or is it an optional work? Is your faith saying, wow, you know what? To be like Jesus, what an opportunity. Do you want to be like Oprah? Do you want to be like Steve Jobs? Do you want to be like Tom Brady? Only maybe one person here does. But Tom O'Brien... You, know, you take your hero. You want to be like LeBron. You want to be like Steph Curry. You know, Steph Curry. You know, you go, wow, I would love to be like them. And they call you up personally and they say, hey, guess what? You get to be in a six-month training camp with me. You get to get paid exactly the amount that I get paid. You get to work my schedule. You'll shadow me in everything. You'd be like, yes, I will do it, wouldn't you? You would say, I am quitting my job, wouldn't you? Because you know six months getting paid like Oprah would last you six years in your regular life. You would follow it. Oprah says, you know what? I work 80-hour days. You go, hot dog, I'm doing it. What an opportunity. Not, come on, Oprah, now you feel like you're you know, obligating me to do a bunch of work. You wouldn't say that to Oprah. You'd be like, awesome! And that's just what we want to do. If you see obedience as a work, then you don't have the faith that aspires to be like Jesus. It's just not the faith that God intended. That's it. It is a beginning faith, it's just not a saving one. You know, it's appreciation is great. It's just not fully given birth to saving faith. Line 10, I want you to understand, saving faith sees obedience as an opportunity to love like Jesus. That's it. What is obedience? What are the commands of the Bible? They're just an opportunity. 
And so with that, line 11, obedience is not the same as salvation by works. Let's show some conviction in our communities. How dare you call obedience work? How dare you insult the lifestyle of Jesus? How dare you insult God's heart? Do you think God is just out here to burden us? To control us? To test us? God's out here to just give us an opportunity to be great. And when you see obeying Jesus as a work, you've stopped seeing Jesus as great. It's very important for us to understand that, to feel it, to know it. Let's go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Let's take a look at how this works, even in the scriptures. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, number one, we need to appreciate Appreciate Jesus dying for our what? Sins. Line 12. Jesus died for our sins. That is important. Amen. We're not minimizing that. But we're not stopping at that. Do you get the difference? Yeah. Jesus died for our sins. That's super important. And we've got to appreciate him. Because he empowered us when we were powerless. Jesus at just the right time. While we were still what? Powerless. Jesus died for the ungodly. Did you know? That salvation is supposed to empower us when we were powerless. It says, hey, let's go on in verse um, 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall uh, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast... In God, through our Lord Jesus, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The other thing Jesus said is that when we were in our sins, we were disconnected from God. And when Jesus died, and it says resurrected, we're not just saved by his death, but it says how much more are we saved by his life. Do you see that? And we'll talk about that in a second. But guess what? Jesus connected us to God when we were disconnected. And I just want you to stop here for a second. When you're working with people, and we're trying to help people understand who we are as a Christian and what's important to us, what matters to us as a church, I want you to understand that faith and love meet our two core needs. In, verse, in line 13, our two core needs of empowerment and connection. Of empowerment and connection. What do you mean by that? When we were powerless, God gives us the power over sin. When we're disconnected, God reconnects us through his love. That's an awesome thing. Do you believe that that's what you can do through the word? 
Do you believe that when you walk on this earth, you can really give the powerless power? That you can make the disconnected no longer feel lonely, but feel loved? You have that power through Christ. And what an important thing to give. It says in verse 7, if we look at verses, uh, verse 7. So I just want you to appreciate that. Just be grateful that this is what God wants to give us. Many of us in this fellowship feel too powerless. Many of us feel too overwhelmed. You go, well, I'm not allowed to feel overwhelmed. No, you are. Sometimes you've got to work through all that and then find the power. God's power doesn't come easily. It doesn't come by just kind of escaping or making life easier for you. But you really learn how by, to, through faith to keep obeying God to find the strength. You know, some of us, we just don't feel loved. We're too lonely. And we've got to say, we've got to stop just wallowing in our powerless loneliness and say, God wants more for me. And to talk to each other and say, hey, how can I find that power and that connection that God intended when he died on the cross, was buried and resurrected? But I want us to appreciate that this is God's destiny for us. The other thing we got to understand is this. In verse 7, it says, God's love is very rare. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. we got to admire how rare this is. Christ's love is extremely rare. There is nothing like it. And so Jesus is worthy of our admiration and praise. There is no religion out there that has this perspective, that the author of the infinite would care so much about us that he would lay down our, his life for us and that he would imbue us through the Holy Spirit, his power, that the creator of all you, the universe would want us to be just like him. That is so rare. No one shares. Like I said, Oprah isn't calling me and asking to share her wealth. I didn't get that call. But God does. God doesn't just call you. He serves you and says, can I share my wealth with you? That's rare. Do you admire how rare God is? And lastly, we aspire. Let's go to chapter 6. And we're just going to look at verse 4 right here just because of time. It says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And all it says is this, Jesus died, was buried, and resurrected, and that we're supposed to do the same thing. That's why baptism is so important. A lot of churches, they teach, well, baptism is just an outward sign of an inward conviction. That's not true. We're here to be just like Jesus. And literally, baptism is, baptism is that point where you're just like Jesus. You're buried with him, and then you're resurrected. Anyone could accept, you know, oh, Jesus died for my sins. But not everyone imitates what he did to die the same way and experience the same resurrection. Is that clear? And so when you're teaching people, that's what baptism is. You know, there's, there should be a chart on your chart, on your... Uh, um, sheet and line 14 it says Christ's love is extremely rare Amen. and then line 15 or line 16 baptism is becoming like Jesus by imitating his death burial and resurrection
we're going to do is I'm going to finish up. You know what? Let me just finish up this last part, and we'll do the next studies the next time. Does that sound good? We're kind of not, it's not a fire sale. We don't have to do everything all at once. But let's just go on to um, 1 John. We'll close out in 1 John. When you're doing this study, and just so you know, you can stop at Romans 6. You really could, because the next passage just really underlines that same notion about what real faith is. Even with the definition of faith is just something in your head and your heart, people just have a shallow understanding of what needs to be in their head and in their heart. They think all I have to do is be grateful for the forgiveness. That's it. But a saving faith is more than that. It's not only you're grateful for the forgiveness, you want to imitate the forgiver. It's not just, wow, thanks, Jesus. See you later. It's, wow, Jesus. To lay down my life like you can produce an amazing victory, and I'm going to sacrifice myself just like you did in hopes of that same victory. Is that clear? It's different than what's popular Christianity. Let's go on. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. It says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, he will, he ha, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also the sins of the world. Right? We appreciate. We appreciate Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. That's line 17. We appreciate Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. That, that's, that makes sense, right? We appreciate Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. But it goes on. We know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commands. In line 18, we admire Jesus by knowing Him. That's when you admire somebody. That's why you appreciate people admiring you, is when they know you. You know, it was interesting because... Um, and I preached on this before, I know this, is that sometimes when we say, I know you, we always talk about the negative things about people. Yeah. We're going to change that as a church, amen? amen? See, when I get with people and I say, I know you, I don't actually talk about the negative things. When you're in a fight with your spouse or a fight with a friend or a fight with your kids, oh, I know what you're going to say. Haven't you ever done that? <laughs> Come on, you've done that to your children. I know what you're going to say. I go, well, if you knew what you're going to say, you should have been prepared to be loving about it. Right? But we, and it's always the negative as opposed to we sit there and go, you know what? I know you. I know how much you love God. I know you. I know how much you love your spouse. I know you. I know how much you want to do good and how much you want to be good in the inside of your heart. And so, you know what? When we follow Jesus, when we obey his commands, you will know how good he is. And you will admire him more. Try doing it. You'll see. And lastly, in verse four, verses 4 through 6. It says, whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Amen. You know, we have to aspire to know Jesus by obeying him. And this passage clearly explicitly says, obeying Jesus is just your opportunity to know Him. That 
You go, if you obey Jesus, it says Jesus' love is made complete in you. A lot of people think, oh, that means I'm saved. No. When you obey Jesus, guess what you learn how to do? Love. And so the Bible just says, hey, when you, if you really want to be saved, that saving faith comes when you realize you're supposed to be like Jesus on this earth. Amen. And so this study is very important for us to do with people so they can have the right heart about why we do things and who we are. Is that clear? And this study, if you look at it, you know, from our history, it's, there, there are like two or three studies that we do that are very unique from our past. This is one of them. The other one is the one that Mike Glenn talked about is what is the saving faith. And, and, and those are two studies. And then this one is the other one that's unique. Almost all the rest of the studies that we do are pretty much similar to our history. So we're going to crank through those. But I took time with this one because it's really materially different because we're trying to get people the right understanding of faith. It's not just appreciating Jesus. It's more than that. It's admiring him. And a real saving faith is the theme of our year. We aspire to be like Jesus. Have a great time in fellowship.